The following episode is dedicated to the memory of Doug Ray, founder of North Texas RPG Con and gamer extraordinaire. school games and the modern games inspired by them. Welcome to the Safer Half Podcast, a podcast where we cover old school games and the modern games inspired by them. This episode, we are covering the Blake 7 role-playing game by the Horizon Blake 7 Appreciation Society, a fan club for the Blake 7 TV show, which, if you think about it, should be the people best able to create an RPG for it. I am, of course, DM Mike, who will be playing the role of Villa Restall, a thief and smarter than everyone thinks he is. And joining me is DM Liz, playing the role of Callie, the psychic empath. Who's not sure why she's with all the rest of you. That's okay. It's highly unlikely you'll be taken over by an alien force this episode. (laughs) Highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. But it's still out there. Yeah, yeah. And if you are, it'll be uh, detected by DM Corbett, who is Orac. <laughs> oh, I can't think of a computer quote now. God, why do you give me this? Oh, it's right because <laughs> just, I asked for just it. Just insert the, <laughs> the key removal noise here. <laughs> and Kerr Avon himself is played by DM Jim. Ding dong, Avon's here. <laughs> I've got all the cold logic and hot opinions and takes. And he probably won't shoot you at the end of it. Probably. Unless he does. <laughs> and we're talking, as I said, about the Blake 7 role-playing game, which is interesting because I think DM Jim is the only one of us who had not actually seen the TV show before Liz chose it as her game to cover this episode. And and I therefore owe Liz big time because I've, I've worked my way through season one. My knowledge... Uh, Subsequent seasons will be lacking thereafter. I really enjoyed it. I got it right away. Okay, this is the anti-Star Trek. Pretty much. Yep. <laughs> the evil federation. And for low-budget 70s BBC, it's way more watchable than Doctor Who of the same era. Whoa, take that, Doctor mm-hmm. Who. <laughs> Which is funny because this show actually replaced a police drama on BBC, so it had a police drama's budget for the first few episodes. Mm. Well, I love my 70s Doctor Who, but, you know, there's a lot of running around for the story to get going. Running down corridors? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, true, true. Whereas here, you had space doors, you know. They opened like normal doors, but they all went... On a, on a good note, though, Jim is untainted, so he'll judge the game purely on its merits as a game. True, true. He are coming to it fresh rather than all the nostalgia that we've got as baggage from the 80s. Hmm. So you can use, dare I say, cold logic. But before we get to that, do we have any announcements we want to throw in? Yes. I I would like to take this opportunity to have a moment on the podcast where three of us appreciate one of us. We need a little mic recognition moment. Hmm. Eh? Our lead lead host and cat herder. (laughs) It sounded stupid when I said it out loud, but I I really mean it (laughs) because... Liz and I were talking a couple of days ago and like which one of the characters would we be in this show and 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 the whole topic of the, the skills and efforts required to lead host and keep keep in charge of things, which I did many years ago on Spellburn, so I know how much work it is. And just yay for Mike. Uh, <laughs> the few times I've done lead host duties for the show, I think on the whole I do okay, but I know my big thing is I am not able to keep everybody on track and 
you know, have us all like going out into the weeds and then 45 minutes later, yank us back onto <laughs> what we're supposed to be talking about in the first place. So really, we're Mike's seven uh, minus three. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I, I think you give me more credit than I necessarily deserve. Corbett has lead hosted on uh, Gagman. Gagman. Yeah. Well, I just let my cats run wild and then cut like <laughs> two or three hours of conversation. It sounds like we really talk about something to the point. <laughs> you fix it in post. Yeah. Like, yeah, whatever. Go crazy. <laughs> but you do it so well. <laughs> it sounds like it's all a nice tight ship. So that's the important thing. No, but here it actually is pretty straight into the point. I don't have to edit hours and hours of footage. Sorry patreons but we what i do clip <laughs> i try to save for the patreons so there's there's moments well i gotta say that uh i i gotta you know credit where credit's due part of it i owe to vince florio because i watched him lead host on save or die for the first 50 episodes and i realized honestly part of it was since he was also the editor he was just trying to make it as little work as he had to possible <laughs> to do when he went into the episode itself but be that as it may it did kind of encourage me to get this almost militant Right, let's go. <laughs> well, you know, fair's fair. He's a great lead host. Every podcast he shows up in, he knows what to do and he does it well. And he has that radio voice, which, you know, is that not nothing. So anyway, well, thank you all. Well, thank you, Jim. I don't know how you other two feel about it. Yeah, you're okay. Yeah. He's all right. You, you know how he's... the you know how the three of us feel about it because every time you try and hand the job off in the pre-show, you hey, this is kind of your topic. You want to lead host this? Everybody steps. It's like the sound of three chairs scooting back at once. <laughs> Shouts of not it through the microphones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because well, touching your nose doesn't count. You can't see it. Nope, yeah. nope, nope. All right. Well, thank you all. Anyway, and other than that, let's head into Mike and the mechanics. It's time for Mike and the Mechanics! Sorry, sorry. That's Mike and the Mechanics of the game. My bad. Mike and the Mechanics, Blake 7 RPG. Those of you who are familiar with certain products by a company called Chaosium will find several things vaguely familiar about this system. It is a percentile-based system, at least skills-wise. It has 10 attributes. Five mind, five body, right? Yeah, five physical, five mental. Strength, size, endurance, initiative, and dexterity for physical. Mental is perception, will, reason, charisma, and empathy. The numbers are 1 to 20. You roll 46, add together, minus, subtract 4, and re-roll if you come up with a 0. You also roll 12 times and then take the top 10 numbers and establish it, which makes it completely different from BRP's 3 to 18, of course. There are sub-attributes, which are combinations of others, like hit points is strength, size, and endurance, Psionics is empathy and willpower, and an optional attribute called stress, which is your willpower, essentially. And as you're under stress, you lose stress points, or you gain stress points, and when they equal your will, you go nuts. There's nothing like that mechanic in Call of Cthulhu. What are you talking about? At <laughs> all. Doesn't even start with an S. <laughs> there are no attribute modifiers, but the number of your skills, my five, depending on the attribute, gives you the skill points you need to buy skills. They have a nifty way of determining what skills and what attributes, but I'll cover that later once we get further into the top five. And I don't want to steal anybody's, so... And, of course, background, which is more just developing your role-playing. It is skills-based. They have things called careers that you choose, but they're really just collections of skills rather than a class-based system. They get a few shots in at D&D, too, there, which I find kind of amusing. Those bratty Brits. Yep. Kind of late to the game to do that, though. True, true. Though I've learned, listening to the Grognard Files, blatant mm. plug, is that at least in the United Kingdom, RuneQuest was as popular, if not maybe more popular, than D&D &D was. Which, considering how dark and gritty yeah, RuneQuest was compared to D&D, &D, yeah, I could see that. Okay. Well, I just love how they describe Barbarian as a career. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 right. I read up on the authors a little bit for this, and even though they, they published this game in 94, they're basically our age stretch here. They all started in 79, just like we did. Mm -hmm. 
So they, they had some OD&D, basic D&D, AD&D angst to work out. Yeah, and that was, uh, what, Ken Meng Louie and Zoe Taylor were the authors, by the way, as through Horizon, which I think you can still buy this through the Horizon fan club. Yeah, if you really want a copy. I tried. Zoe Taylor is still around and still at Horizon, and you've got to, like, admin messenger or something to buy a copy. And there's one, one copy on eBay right now that in from pounds or euros or whatever over to dollars is only 30 bucks, but it's like another 30 to ship it across the ocean. Though, again, point out, this isn't just a role-playing game. It also comes with a separate technical manual with various deck plans and other gear plans, which we'll cover once we get into the show. But anyway, top five, but first impressions. And we'll start with you, Jim, since you're the Blake 7 newbie here. I'm going to bifurcate my comments up front because I'm brand new to Blake 7 as a TV show and I've only watched the first season and I'm all in. I get it and I love it. The game system, not so much. That's okay. a, that's, that's that's my first impression. It's, it's, it's weird because it was written and published in 94, but it reads a lot like something somebody would have written in the early 80s and that blossoming of people jumping in and doing stuff. And yeah. it, I'm going to be hard on it. It's fine. It's good. And some of it's play style preference, but it just didn't the system itself didn't grab me if it was put out today i would almost think it's a brp retro clone right, right. Thinking the same thing yeah oh sorry i stole that from you corbett because you're next no that's i i was thinking about the same thing that that felt like well like jim said it feels like the art feels like a lot of the art that was in some of the first star trek modules and stuff that came out like it was second tier artists that were putting things in lots of black and well, it, it just has a very fanzine kind of feel, well, almost. Well, considering it was published by the official fa- British fan club for Blake 7, I wonder, frankly, if this was a lot of art they either had laying around or they knew a lot of fanzine artists. I think it was that. I think a lot of the art came from their members and their fan art. Yeah, that's probably a distinction we'll need to make often through this if we get too hard on it. Because for a, for a fan club RPG, it's great. Yeah, yeah. sorry, and Corbett, that's, that's go ahead. Thing. Nostalgically speaking, uh, I was going, okay, I remember Blake Seven. This should be fun, and it kind of pulls you back because of that retro feel that either they did on purpose or accidentally. Because '94, it feels like it was written probably in '83 by a fan club, like a well done fan club production in '83 or '84, maybe. I I wonder if it maybe that was when it was written and it was just played in the club until fun, somebody finally convinced them to actually try and put it out as a for real product. That's yeah, a good question. Be. Yeah. I mean, we'd have to ask the authors probably. Mm. Okay. Well, Liz? The rules are like if Call of Cthulhu and Champions had a baby. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Those, those are the rules. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, especially when you start reading the combat section. Yes! (laughs) Now, I mean, I played a lot of champions, so that's not necessarily a bad thing for me. And, yeah, it's like, you know, reading through it, I felt a lot of rule callbacks from my days playing either Call of Cthulhu or champions. And that's the feel I got reading through it. And of course, the nostalgia factor, which was a big part of the reason why I chose this game to cover. On the whole, I enjoyed myself going over the rules. And there are certainly things that we'll get into when we start doing top five that I certainly would not mind at all incorporating into a campaign. But yeah, there's also bits as like, oh, this is super duper crunchy, way too crunchy for me now. (laughs) (laughs) Our tastes have changed. Yeah. Okay. Then my first impression, pretty much like I said, it it felt like a retro clone. It's like somebody took the serial, serial numbers off of BRP and added a few house rules that they really enjoyed playing. I'm not sure 10 attributes are really necessary. There are some things in here that I think are really good. There are some things I think in here that aren't that good. But when I first got it, I was actually more excited about the technical manual that came with it, with the deck plans of the Liberator and the Federation Pursuit ships, then later the uh, Scorpio 
even like planet hoppers and that sort of thing it would be like oh i would have loved to have this on hand when i was running early traveler being able to just lay out deck plans of that it also had stuff to where you could virtually it almost gave you the directions on how to make costumes or some of the gear like the teleport bracelets or the freaky little federation helmets and that sort of thing and it's you're just kind of like wow is this like is this the larp rules what no it's the fan stuff you know yeah it's the fan stuff it kind of makes me wonder you know was this a fan book that happened to have an rpg attached or an rpg with uh, some fan extras thrown in it's it's an interesting dichotomy it could be all those things and more all right well let's go to a pod break and then when we come back top five Into a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts they came. The Grognard Files, a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. My dear wife, I now take pen to hand to send you a few lines to let you know that I am well and hope that my letter finds you the same. I have gotten over the terrible sickness that has plagued me until recently, thanks to your mother's mustard plaster remedy. We struggle from day to day as our march of the pig-faced orcs continues to advance. We have no choice but ourselves and our brethren but to stand up for descending armor class. We must march on to provide a safe world where words such as Dweoma, Milieu, and Eldritch can be spoken not in hushed whispers, but shouted from the mountaintops and in every city and town across this great land. For all these things and more, we must fight on. All available troops are converging on the Woodward Park Library in Fresno, California, on Saturday, November 13th, 2021, from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Should my son Arliss's dog catch rabies, be sure to make him put the animal down himself. Not only is it manly and will build his character considerably, it will ensure that he is awarded maximum experience points. Affectionately yours, Lieutenant Beauregard Bullock. Following is brought to you by the City of Greyhawk and the Council of Eight. Greyhawk, if you lived here, you'd be dead by now. The Save for Half Top Five in Five, Four, Three, Two. Top five with Jim. Oh, I get to go first. Yes. You already got you already got two of mine in Mike and the Mechanics. All right. So <laughs> I, I'm well known for my obsessive compulsive disorder tendencies. And as soon as I hit the abilities in this game, my brain started throwing sparks. But then it took me like half an hour to work out the math of what my brain was trying to tell me. They introduced those 10 abilities you talked about, half physical, half mental. They tell you right up front, they're one to 20. And you roll them by rolling 4d6 minus 4. And my game designer engine kicked on and I couldn't let it go. So I mathed it out myself. Then I had to call like a Boeing engineer friend of mine to make sure I'm not mathing it wrong. 4d6 minus 4 is going to give you a bell curve where the average ability is 10. Straight 3d6 minus nothing is going to be 10.5. So what was the point of... 46 minus 4. Because you could get 20. Okay, that's probably what they were thinking. And and I think it was just, why? Because it was different than BRP. You know, it's that whole, and I'm guessing, but I'll bet it was mostly the part of the shaving off the serial numbers. Well, no, it's different. We're not 3 to 18. We're 4 to 20. It could have been as simple as that. I mean, we've we've all yeah. done that. We're like, okay, I'm going to have the six abilities in my game, but I'm going to rename Wisdom Psychic or something. Yeah, yeah. To be Again, different. that retro feel. But the math did not compute, not even for a BFA. Very clunky, I agree. 
Okay, Corbett, five. You'll put your eye out. This <laughs> game will destroy every appendage and part on your body if you have a body <laughs> left. The odds of your body getting hit pretty low compared to every other part of your body. There is a to hit location chart. There are uh, body part damage charts. I could pick a Liz thing and go, oh yeah, there's so many charts. But no, it's just funny that the odds of you losing some part of your body is incredibly high. <laughs> just so you can be Travis and have the, the eye replacement <laughs> and the laser hand, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, that's a complaint about the show. Come on. Commander Travis couldn't be named Commander Fred or Jeff. Space Commander Travis. Because he's a commander <laughs> in space. Everybody else has a weird name, but no. Travis. <laughs> Travis. Everybody oh, Blake. hates Travis. I mean, that's... Hey, it's his last name, though. His first space name is Commander Blake, um... Phil. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's pretty much it, though. You can lose some part of your body really, really easily. I'll hand it over to Space Commander Liz, then. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Well, to be fair, with the whole hit location and removal of appendages and stuff, that is an optional combat rule. So you're with, defending it. With hit points and stuff. <laughs> I, I'm sort of defending it. It kind of segues into one of the things that I did want to point out is you can make the game as crunchy as you want with all of these optional rules that are given, like the ones with stress the allocation of hit points to various parts of your body, et cetera, et cetera. But that being said, they pretty much say with the various optional additions, especially when it comes to the combat additions, this is going to make the game slow as hell, but you do you. you know? <laughs> I mean, almost every time they give an optional rule, they point out this will slow down gameplay. You know, almost like we really don't use these optional rules ourselves, but we're including them in case you like them. <laughs> one of those gamers. <laughs> if you're one of those gamers, here's some crunch. I, mean, I guess you can use them, but it's going to slow things down. Don't say we didn't warn you. You know? Well, I think you're right, because I read an interview, and it might have been a transcription of a podcast on the Grognard Files, where they were talking about playtesting this with all their wargaming friends. And, I, and so that's what that sounds like. Okay, for you guys, here's all this crunch. Yeah, because there's a lot of wargaming-style crunch tacked onto this, and they always make sure to say that it's optional. Like I said, in almost every instance that they do, they tack on at the end, this will slow down gameplay, you know? <laughs> oh, this is so gonna segue into my five. <laughs> my five. Space combat. <laughs> I knew you were gonna have something to say, Traveler Boy. Uh... <laughs> Well, at least unlike Star Frontiers, they have the space combat as part of the core rules. I'll give them that. But they start off with talking about how they're not going to be like other combat systems where they have a map board and counters and moving ships around, that sort of thing, because they want to keep more like the TV show and how combat was done there. Okay, I can certainly get behind that. You know, you're trying to do, it's kind of like having a tactical combat game in Star Trek. It's like, well, if you mm -hmm. want to do it like the show, it's going to be a different animal. It's not going to be a war game. And then they make it into this mathematic monstrosity of constant allocation of hundreds of energy units from the various banks to various things at various times for various maneuvers and various... And in, in the end, you're just going to end up with a couple of people with a piece of paper writing up numbers. And that's not much like the show either. I kind of get it because I watch so much Star Trek. I've got a working understanding of warp factors, right? And sublight. But I'm watching the first season of this show and oh, what's our speed standard plus three. And I'm not getting it at all. This at least explained it to me. Now I understand. Right, but of course, that's the Liberator crew's use of speed. Everybody else uses time distort, which is a different <laughs> method. Oh, wait, wait, I got this. I paid attention. T uh, time distort one is twice the... It's 2,000 spatials per hour. But what's a spatial? I forget. 
<laughs> That's because the show can never figure it out. They have spatials here, spatials there. Sometimes it's like you only have a range of 10,000 spatials to teleport. Other times you're only 100 spatials from the planet, which would put you in orbit, which or put you in the atmosphere, and just they didn't maintain consistency. But I can forgive that because it's a 70s TV show. It, it just makes me think of Foss's Star Trek. You know, that whole thing where they were trying to get everybody to be the various uh, bridge personnel mm -hmm. and have their own little tracks to handle energy and whatnot. A lot of Star Trek computer games turned into that later, too. Like yeah, I don't think that worked, but I can't fault them for trying to give the feel of a Star Trek episode, you know, with everybody being able to participate rather than just the captain making tactical maneuvers and everybody gets a little something to do. I would have been happier if they had tried that here. Even if I don't think that's the best system in the world, it at least would keep the flavor. So that's my grouse. For what they were trying to do, which amounts to cinematic starship combat, they really should have made it a simpler system, a little more abstract. So, Jim, four. I'm going to talk about the stress mechanic, and even though we've pretty much already gone over it. But I'll, I'll speak to it in, in terms of some of what I'm going to say about this system is about playstyle preference rather than mechanics. Okay, the abilities averaging almost the same. You just have to do a different formula. That's stupid. That's a mechanic. But playstyle preference, obviously, that stress mechanic not only emulate, simulates some of what the crew go through, where, you know, it's the next episode, half the crew's sick, what's wrong with them? Well, they all got radiation last episode that's so the stress mechanic to emulate episodic things that happen to the show that's great i am just not one of those people who enjoy the call of cthulhu game system where it's and it it's ironic i don't understand why i can keep a 12th level magic user spell chart straight in my head but resource managing my sanity or my stress in the middle of trying to enjoy a role-playing game is not fun for me if that is fun for you, you're going to love the stress mechanic because it's kind of cool. Yeah, like you said, I think they were trying to emulate particularly what happens to a unnamed character in fourth season. So I can Don't salute go easy them for on that. the spoilers over a 40-year-old show on my account. <laughs> well, let's just say that Avon winds up having the mental breakdown that they talk about in the stress rules of the game. Yeah. And I think that they were specifically trying to incorporate the possibility of that kind of thing happening to a player character and by to a lesser extent it. villa you know you can make that argument for some of villa's behavior in the fourth season too oh i saw a picture of the crew in the third or fourth season when they're all different so is is after the breakdown when avon starts parting his hair <laughs> yeah i think uh, yeah i think was it second season or third season that he started parting his hair i think it was third season and you start to see the seeds of it happening in third season, but fourth season is really where it just flowers. Yeah, even, yeah. <laughs> yeah, th things do not go well for the crew. It's just nonstop, and it starts to tell on them. And you could really tell the BBC did not want to bring Blake Seven back for that fourth season. Well, and I'm in for it. There's nobody that loves Star Trek more than me, but that's a utopia universe, and this is clearly a dystopian universe. Yeah. yeah. I will say it's very telling. Fourth season is the only one that does not have a single episode written by Terry Nation. The creator of Blake Seven, for those unaware. I wonder I wonder if we should have had a, a d brief description of the show at the beginning. <laughs> well, if you get the game, there is a brief description of the show within the rulebook. Very yeah, true. Very the entire true. summary. That's a good point. Good point. Or, so, or if you're like me, you're just going to know that Liz is all-knowing and all-seeing and right and all things <laughs> and go get all the episodes and start watching them. Which, by the way, is not easy either. This game is hard to find. I, like, eBay's full of Blake 7 DVD sets for like region four. Well, that doesn't help me. Yeah. They are available on BritBox now. Yes, BritBox in America started carrying the show immediately after I spent a month finding the episodes. Yes, yeah. that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we wound up just buying a region free um, Blu-ray Blu-ray DVD player just so we could, we could watch. watch. <laughs> <laughs> the point is if you're listening to this and you have no clue about Blake 7, Liz is always right. You'll love it. Go get it. <laughs> Thank you. So, Corbett, four. Well, one thing you can always remember about from Blake 7 is drugs. <laughs> Their use of drugs is pretty extensive. And for those who don't know, it's because they based a lot of the background of the world on Brave New World, the original 1930s novel. Oh, yeah. Soma mm -hmm. comes up, right? So so yep. Soma mm -hmm. comes up a lot. And it's always like, oh, we got to get more Soma. We got to get more Soma. It's funny. They use it like a hypo spray from Star Trek, but Soma's not that. <laughs> yeah. 
And not to mention there are other episodes where they deal with actual drugs and criminal cartels like the Terra Nostra that deal in mm. them. And Oh, that's a good name. That's a good name, Terra isn't Nostra. Isn't it? The Terra Nostra. I loved that. I used that in Traveler after I saw that. It's like, ooh, that is a cool name for a criminal cartel. <laughs> Before big part it plays in the world, it does. The drugs don't actually have a lot. Uh, they have some effects in the game, but not like they're mostly like it's like alcohol. Like, well, not really, but sure. Don't forget, they tend to drug most of their population too, to a degree. Yeah, uh, that was the whole thing. He was being Blake was being okay for, for for a quick summation for anybody who has no idea what Blake Seven is. Blake Seven is hey, let's do Robin Hood in space. Let's put it in Brave New World, and there we're done. So you and, got it. And with aspects of the Dirty Dozen thrown in. Hey, oh, yeah, Dirty Dozen. Okay. Yeah, That's pretty it good. Because it starts off on a ship. That's yeah. pretty good. They get a super awesome ship, but they're more or less alone against a massive evil federation in the galaxy. Yeah. But drugs are everywhere. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I think it's I think it's funny that the the effects of them in the game aren't nearly as effective as they are in the the show. But I'm not sure if that's because they maybe they were playing it in the 80s and you know say no to drugs, kid. But it was Britain, so you know. Yeah, I, yeah, me. Anyway, drugs. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Liz? One of the mechanics that I did like about the game is where they talk about different kinds of tasks. And you have secret tasks and something that they call uncertain tasks. And we're all pretty much used to secret tasks in other games like D&D. You know, the referee makes the role and the character does not know if they failed or not until after the fact. But I really like the mechanic behind the uncertain task where both the player and the referee make the role. And the actual result is the average between the two roles. The referee's role is secret. So depending on how you rolled, you have an idea of whether or not you probably succeeded or failed, but you're not really sure. And I think that's a pretty good way to keep player involvement in their own destiny and yet still have that sense of uncertainty that you would normally have, you know, if you were doing this in real life. Sort of a variant of Walker's beat my role. Right. You roll, the GM rolls behind the screen, and you say whether or not you keep your role or you want the GM's. And if you choose the GM's, only then do you get to see what they rolled. So, yeah, (laughs) it's pretty fun. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly use that task system. It would be fun. My four. I like, I I think what they do as an improvement over BRP is skills have an attribute attached to them, which means you take your attribute, multiply it by five, and that's how many skill points you have to buy skills with that attribute as the base. You can buy one-to-one. Now, you could buy, use that to buy other skills that don't have that attribute as the base, but the cost is doubled. And I I like that a lot, too. I think that's a great idea. Like, say you have somebody like Gan, his obvious thing is strength. So he'll buy things with strength. So there's a rationale for you to put the higher numbers you roll into strength for that character's concept, because there's a a tangible reward for having a higher strength. And I also like the whole thing, you only get half of the points if you use something from a different attribute to buy the skill. Mm -hmm. You know, so kind of like you can still gain leadership skills, based on your reason instead of your charisma, apparently what Avon did, but it's harder <laughs> than if you had that natural advantage of the, the charismatic personality. Yeah. And you, of course, each point is 1% at a given skill. You've got minimums in certain skills, much like BRP on quote unquote traditional skills. So I liked that. Jim, three. You're almost talking me out of my hatred of this whole skill system. <laughs> <laughs> You're a very persuasive argument. My my number three, I'm not certain I'm right, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But it, right in space combat, it starts talking about the difference between computers and AIs. And one of the things I love about the show are the sassy AIs. I, and I've only gotten to Zen and Orac, right, in, mm. in season one. Like, I thought Zen was pretty sassy with the crew until they corked Orac on for the first time. Like, okay, season two is obviously <laughs> going to be all about this guy. It's great when the two of them argue with each other. That's even better. And in the rules, in the com- in the space combat, they even distinguish because the AIs are such an important part of how the ships are piloted. They mark the difference between those two because a computer is just a computer, but the AIs on the ship also have some abilities and like personality and whatever. And it suddenly occurred to me as I'm reading that, well, wait a minute, the show's called Blake Seven and there's only six of them. So Zen has to be number seven. So why isn't that a 
playable character class? Or why aren't there rules for generating an AI, even if the GM has got to run them as NPCs? Yeah. I feel like I complained about a, not being able to be a robot recently for something. And... Indeed you did. Yes, <laughs> you did. In another science fiction game. Stop Everybody... throwing my own words against me, Corbett. <laughs> Everybody no. is anti-robot. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I think it would require more mechanics since basically creating an AI would be a whole different system than the standard character generation. But I think you could do it. Well, I mean, like any licensed or in this case, fan created so so not really licensed, you know, genre thing. You're you're, you're faced with the same things. How do we simulate what's in the game versus uh, what's playable as a, a role playing game? But yeah, I wanted I wanted rules to generate. So so you so you're either going to play these characters from the show or you're going to make up your own crew, right? Well, if you make up your own crew, you got to make up your own ship, and then you need to make up your own AI. Well, you don't have to. You could, you could just have computers, but yeah. No, well, they do make it sound like AIs are special. Yeah, they're they're like. But of course, Scorpio had an AI, so it's not beyond possibility that they, quote-unquote, traditional Federation ships could have an AI. They normally didn't, at least the Pursuit ships didn't. Uh, on the other hand, they, if I am remembering correctly, Dorian supposedly was a student of Insors, and so oh, yeah. he learned a lot about probably from Ensor's work on the initial on creation of Orac true, and, true. and emulated that to create the AI slave. I had totally forgotten about that. Okay. okay. See, listeners, yeah. this is what I'm talking about. I have no idea what Liz just said, but I'm going to agree with her because I know she's right. <laughs> she is Blake Seven Master. <laughs> okay. Then Corbett, three. Okay. Positive note. I really enjoyed the starship or star system creation part of the rules even though it's like it goes on for a while it's about eight pages very granular but if you're wanting to make a solar system mm -hmm. i think i like yeah. this one actually better yep. than fossas or um travelers it was actually pretty pretty granular I, I had some traveler flashbacks reading that yeah i loved their little snarky comment it's like while the worlds portrayed in the program inevitably resembled bleak windswept quarries <laughs> sand pits or forests yep what do they mean <laughs> oh great another rock quarry <laughs> that's how you knew doctor who got a budget upgrade when it came back because it was no longer quarries outside london it was just whales now yep <laughs> Although when you watch Blake 7, you'll notice anytime they're on a high-tech facility, it obviously looks like the same nuclear power plant over and over again. Yeah. So, but that's it. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a cool system. In fact, I'd probably import that for any sci-fi game. Yeah, it doesn't have any stats that really connect anything. It's all specifics about what the world is. So. Yeah. It's a pretty good, what is it, ever it is, five or six pages for the size and scope of the book. Yeah. Like, that's the nightmare of these games. Okay, I've got the role-playing game, but these people fly around in ships and have ship battles. Okay, now i got to write a whole space combat game and stick it in the middle of this game. <laughs> Oh, unless you're TSR, then you'd release a whole separate game. <laughs> yes, I will not let that go of that. <laughs> we'll do ships later. <laughs> <laughs> but they did have robots, so they beat Traveler in that field, certainly. Anyway, you By can 20 have years. ships. You can have robots. <laughs> but you can't have both. Oh. It's your choice, honey. Mm -hmm. Did Boss of Star Trek have robots? No. Okay. So. Because they, there weren't any robots. Well, I guess there were, but they were all adversarial. Yeah. There was no wow. data yet. It's true. You can't have starship combat <laughs> and robots. It's amazing. <laughs> it's one or the other. Yep. Okay, Liz. Three. Getting back to banging on skills again. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that I liked about how they did it was their method of skill improvement. And basically, you roll percentile dice. And if your role is greater than your current skill level, you improve. And you can then roll a d6 and add that number to your current skill. So the worse you are at something, the easier it is for you to learn something new about it. While if you already know most of what there is to know about something, it's very difficult to find something new about it that you don't know to add to your knowledge, which is kind of realistic, actually. At the beginning of your learning curve, there's almost 
nothing that you know. So it's real easy to pick up new knowledge. But the more you know, the harder it is to find stuff you don't know. I don't recall that exactly. Was it like BRP where you had to actually successfully use your skill before you get a chance to roll skill? Yes. Okay, so... so yeah, I mean, so you do actually, have to succeed at least. Right. But once you do succeed, you are almost guaranteed to have learned something from the experience. Yeah. Now, I've only played Call of Cthulhu once in my life, but isn't that like Call of Cthulhu 2 where your skill check has like graded successes, whether it's like a hard success or critical fail? I might not be using the right words. They, if I am remembering correctly, they have a suggested way basically for referees to add how easy easy or a difficulty modifier to the skill. And yeah, pretty much, you know, very easy, normal, difficult, very difficult. So they do have that here. But if I am remembering correctly, it is an optional way that they suggest referees use. Like your skill check you need to succeed is 35 and you haul off and roll 98. Okay, that's some kind of super spectacular result. Kaboom. <laughs> that all is? That is all. Okay. I like how how you can improve skills. Okay. My three. I really enjoyed how they peppered the quotes from the show all through the book, especially for examples of, of what they're trying to emulate. It was reminiscent of Marvel, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Only less goofy than, than Marvel. Oh, yeah. And more it, to the it, point of what was happening in the chapters and stuff, too. Well, it's got to be said, the TV show is, is quotable from one end to the other. Oh, Lord, yes. Especially Avon and Villa. They are just awesome, quote, monsters. It really gives you the flavor of the show and gives you a feeling of how characters might interact in the game in a given circumstance. So really like that. Okay, Jim, too. We're doing such a good episode, and we're talking about so much of this game that my top five list that I have nine on is shredded. <laughs> the initiative system. I wish you could be inside my head as I was reading through that. I was like, first thing is initiative and combat is in strict initiative order, and that's one of your stats. So whoever's got the highest initiative just goes first, and it always works that way. And I just wrote that into one of my games. So I'm obviously a fan of, okay, enough of the dice rolling every round of combat. This is nice. It's simple. It makes sense. Let's do it this way. And then, of course, there was, but here are some optional initiative rules, and it was like champions all over again, like trying to figure out who goes when and champions with a whole barcode chart. Oh, my gosh, yes. Segments. <laughs> the order in so, which they so, perform actions is determined randomly. <laughs> so, damn speed charts. So, you know, perhaps instead of a, a pick or a yay, it's to the credit of the game that they give you both directions to play in every time it's something. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that's another one of those issues where they say, this will slow down gameplay. Yes. <laughs> I'm reading this thing in my head. I'm just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's right. That's good. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Corbett? Uh, hints and tips. I did not like these. I did not like them on a train. I did not like them on a plane. <laughs> I don't know if you guys really went through them, but they were... I do not like first them I was thinking... with a regulator. I do not like them on the liberator. <laughs> the, the, there's a hints and tips section with like seven, I think, seven basic. Like, these will help you get through the game. And they're all agitating the crap out of me when I'm reading it. <laughs> and they're, they're obviously designed to focus on the way that Blake 7 was and to make your game like Blake seven because like uh, can you give an example? Uh, number two, a good way to keep your players guessing and wondering is what's coming up next is to either start rolling dice, make notes, or take their character sheets to look at something and give it back for no reason to incite <laughs> paranoia in the group. Like that would be, but I that's mean, it's, so it's, old school. It that's is old jamming one hundred and one. What are you talking it, about? It is, but <laughs> paranoia. Uh, I think it's a problem I'm used to Star Trek sci-fi where it's like, we're all working together and we're all chummy. Like, wait, what is he doing? What are you doing? I don't trust any of you. (laughs) I was reading that and thinking, this is stuff Mike would do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, at least I don't like pass notes to people in the middle of a game and then they open the note and says, I'm not telling you anything, but keep this secret so the others will wonder. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. another one where, if I remember, yeah, it's like, this is what you do too, Mike. You Using it seems. Oh, yeah, <laughs> nothing yeah. apparently happens. Yes, nothing apparently happens. You know, everything appears normal. You know, that's exactly... <laughs> 
exactly the sort of Pre-arc. you do. Dude, that's, <laughs> again, that's that's great GMing 101. Yeah. Question, question, question for the player. Yeah, it looks that way. Deadpan. Well, but one thing that's not old school is the you not to kill off the characters arbitrarily because it'll make you unpopular. The, you can't obviously. You really, really need cannon fodder to use. Use the NPCs, kill them off. It, it's just kind of I don't know. It's just mostly designed to make everything tense and annoying, and I I think I would hate that. But that's an opinion and an optional rule, I'm sure. <laughs> Go ahead, a play, Liz. A playstyle preference, as it were. Yes. Yeah, yes. but I can. I I think you know if you're playing Blake Seven, you expect a certain degree of paranoia. Everybody's Avon. <laughs> Well, there's a certain matter of trust or lack of trust, depending, especially when they first get together. So yeah, I can see where, you know, if you're used to the Star Trek type or even just D&D where parties actually work together, that could be counterintuitive. But in which case you want to make them all mutually paranoid of the world around them, but they still trust each other. Just enough. Just enough, exactly. Okay, Liz? At the beginning of the book, every role-playing game has the obligatory, this is what role-playing is. And this book is no exception. Theirs is called The Delta's Guide to (laughs) Role-Playing Games. And I did like the analogy that they used to compare playing an RPG with being an actor and being a referee with a director of a program featuring the player actors. Further going on, and they compare a single adventure session with a TV episode and a campaign with a season of episodes. Uh, The NPCs are compared to extras or supporting characters in a show. I figure, you know, given that this is a game based on a TV series, it's a very apt analogy. And I figure, and they probably did too, it was more likely to resonate with someone who was going to be picking up that book in the first place because they liked the TV show. Yeah, a layman's guide. Yeah, it's like, let's make the comparisons with people on the TV show. It's like, yeah. I think Eden Studios did that with their games as well, but then they did Buffy and Angel and all those other RPGs. Mm -hmm. Not long after this one, though. Yeah, I mean, they were like, I guess, 97, 98. You know, so, okay. My number two. I like the idea of careers because that was a good shorthand. If you're not going to have classes, it's almost like the archetypes system Mm -hmm. from Eden Studios. So I like that. But do we really need to bash other role-playing games with limiting class-based systems? (laughs) Guys, what's up with you British guys having to bash D&D all the time? But Barbarian as a career choice. (laughs) What else would you have called the space rats? I don't know, but I just love the very idea of oh, the well, idea what do you want to s- be when you grow up? I want to be a barbarian. I went to barbarian <laughs> school and <laughs> I got a master's degree. Oh, oh, well, let's not get started because then we got a training from AD&D for classes. Yeah. And yeah, uh-huh. go to the barbarian academy to be a better barbarian. Excuse me, Mr. Thar, are you here for your son's career day advice? <laughs> so yeah i mean i i like the idea of careers i think they could have actually promoted those a little more than they did but yeah it's just really guys honestly anyway okay jim take us home number one my number one is how well done this is in answering the star wars paradox and the the star wars paradox is okay i'm running a role-playing game based on star wars and there are only three movies from the 70s and 80s to base it on which is what west end games was saddled with there's three movies of content but you have to build a campaign world or in this case a universe for the players to venture in and i don't know i'm sure people of our generation know but that west end games was a big part of how we continue to have star wars because they kept the torches burning in the 90s and until george lucas got yeah actually followed the west end games supplements yeah yeah yeah. but when they started there's three movies and maybe four books and that's it and they had to make a bunch of stuff up and the holiday special cartoons yes the holiday special (laughs) and the toys Here's, here's your fun fact for the episode that has nothing to do with nothing. The Star Wars Christmas special was not Mark Hamill's first voice acting for animation. Do you know what was? I do not. Why, well, I should. Wait a minute. No, hold on. It's like another kid show. His first uh, role was the fairy prince in the Ralph Bakshi movie Wizards that was being made at the same time Star Wars was. And holy crap. Oh, yeah. I watched that again. 
the, mm-hmm. the, the, the little blue fairy son of the king who's got like a, a funky hat and blue tights. That's Mark Hamill. Awesome. Mm. That is pretty cool. I don't know what why that came up. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway. Uh, but these guys... Trivia so, so, released. So, so Blake 7 is not <laughs> Star Wars, right? But there's only four seasons of the show, and I'm guessing maybe somewhere there were a book or two, and, and later, way, way later, Big Finish stuff. Mm-hmm. There was gobs of fanzines, though, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the Horizon website. They have a lot of fan stories from those zines of the 80s up on their website. So, Well, Zoe Taylor and Kin Ming Louie deserve a lot of credit because whatever there was, they stuck it into this. There's the game proper, and then there's the technical manuals and stuff like that. Well, what if Heritage had done that with a Star Trek game? Back in mm-hmm. the 70s, you they would have been 10 times better. And these guys just did the work and did it. So that's my name. Yeah. Yeah. Even though, as one can expect, some fans of the show poo-poo the deck plans of not being totally accurate with the show. Well, the show's not accurate with the yeah, show. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of my point. I'm like, it's fine. There's so much of the ships you never see. So you're going to have to do some yeah. making it up yourself at some point. And the Liberator was supposed to be massive, yet, you know, you only saw like three or four rooms in the whole ship. Only the most important rooms. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, there's stuff you just got to get over. You know, like they're on the most, the, the sophisticated alien war vessel that's better than the Federation technology, but it's all still made out of spray painted particle board. Yep. Yeah, don't <laughs> lean on the wall because <laughs> they do that in one episode. <laughs> uh, but anyway, okay. Corbett? That's me. I really enjoyed the NPC breakdown. They they break them down into three basic categories, which I know isn't really like anything new, but it was about to be different about like a couple years later is when Feng Shui came out and they put out the MOOC rule, which I always enjoy. Mm-hmm. But they, they have the major, the minor, and the stock characters. Stock characters are, of course, you know, like here's an orc. Here's another orc. Here's another orc. Here's an orc <laughs> with a flag, so he's got a special ability. Basically, guys in the Federation uniforms. Whack, whack-a-mole. Right. But it was it's obviously leading toward what would become that mook rule that, that pops up in Feng Shui with where you just like, oh, here's 50 guys. I punch and punch and punch and punch. And then I get to the guy that I really want to fight. Yeah. It kind of leans into, okay, Servalan is obviously important. Travis, for some reason, is important. Hey! <laughs> He's got a metal arm, folks. He's very scary. <laughs> As Liz used to call it, a rock candy ring on that no, finger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah with one of those little ring pops. Ring pops. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to get those. <laughs> it's so huge. That's that's what he's got. <laughs> yeah. But, yep, I think it was really neat. They broke down those NPC kind of setups. I think uh, that's something that I could see using in another, any other system to, to categorize, like, this is an important person, this is sort of an important person, and this is everybody else who follows them. Yeah. Simple, quick, so. and easy. I like their setup for that. Again, cinematic. It's a lot of work to go through for NPCs The characters are just going to shoot on sight. Like, not the characters in the show, the real players. They're just going to murder everybody. Yep, murder hobos. Uh, the quote, and I don't know if I can find it. I don't remember where the section was. The quote was um, Blake saying, "So they're human," and then I forget who it was says, "I'll have to, you'll have to prove that to me." Or something. <laughs> that sounds like Callie. Yep. Yes, that was Callie. Yes. <laughs> Speaking anyway. of Callie, okay. Okay, number one. I guess the last thing I'm going to talk about is moving back to space combat. Like Mike, I didn't much care for it as a whole. One of the few things that I did find that I liked was the fact that they tried their best to emulate personal combat as far as the turn structure for it. So they did try to make it the same or at least a similar framework, you know, in some weird sort of way. You're not having to learn a whole, an entirely new mechanic. Right. I mean, I would personally suggest, for me anyway, you know, they say either the basic or the advanced order of actions may be used. For God's sake, please just use the basic order of actions. Ship combat with all the point allocations for energy reserves and stuff, that gives it a whole level of complexity already. You don't need to pile onto that by using the advanced order of actions where everything just gets totally random. (laughs) And, you know, determining order initiative for space combat, you either use your pilot's initiative or the ship's control, whichever one is less. And that's really the only difference between that and personal combat. 
because you can pick. That bit I thought was good. I just wish they could have kept the rest of it from being quite so head exploding. Yeah. Logistical. Yeah. Well, Liz, are you feeling stress? Yeah, if you love logistics, <laughs> you would you will love it. Have we have we all played Starfleet Battles? I, I never played, played it. once. Really? Oh. I played the Star Trek game. I've never played Starfleet Battles. It's it, it's an out and out war game, but the crux of the game is you've got your starship sheet with all the little boxes that show how much of the, all the resources your ship needs, and it's constantly tracking those. This is that times ten. Yeah, it's basically a sci-fi version of the SPI game. Dreadnought. It's everything's pretty granular. It's it's almost settled, settlers of Catan level. <laughs> okay, my hey, number Mike, one. I want to ask you in advance if your number one is Psionics because I forgot to talk about Psionics. Nope, but I can oh, add I it, it if you want. No, you guys are just going to have to go get the game for yourselves and see their Sonic system, I guess. I was kind of surprised Liz didn't choose Sonics. <laughs> I, I thought for sure someone else would talk about I it. I purposely so I didn't, didn't choose it because I figured one of you would choose it. <laughs> Yes. Oh, oh, clearly none of us have psionics. Certainly not precog. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. What What is your number one, then? <laughs> My number one. When I was first reading the character generation system, it had what most gamers expect. It was attributes, skills, and then background. You know, the, the who is your character, where are they from, blah, blah, blah. But then when they're actually describing it, they strongly encouraged you to do the backgrounds first, then roll the attributes and do the other stuff. Now, when I first read that, I didn't like it. I thought, well, that's dumb because you don't know what your numbers you're going to roll ahead of time. So you may have the concept of a character that isn't going to work out. Then I read into it a little more and realized there's so many backstops from avoiding what would be called a hopeless character from the roll 12 times, drop the lowest two, put them where you want, re-roll zeros, and then finally, if you add all 10 attributes and they're less than 75, you get to throw out the numbers, the lowest numbers, and re-roll them. And then it's like, okay, you can pretty much choose your character tight. I mean, you can make a strong character. No matter that strength is 17, 19, or 20, maybe different, but you can choose a strong character. So the more I thought about it, the more it grew on me that, especially if you're coming into this without a RPG background, it's a strong concept to encourage them to think of the character first before they roll any dice. So I ended up liking it. I'd never thought of it, but you're kind of right. It's sort of an emergent role-playing tool to create a character like Gan, whose attributes are all centered in size and strength, but his personality is very gentle giant. Yeah. And and not smart. And obviously the limiter would have been a role-playing choice, since there's no real rules for that sort of thing. At least none that I saw. Which, again, would be a nice way of creating the background ahead of time. So, I like that. So, I could play a magic user who's not an arsonist. I never thought of that. <laughs> nah! Well, let's, let's not get crazy here. <laughs> not a huge arsonist. How about that? Not a huge one. Doesn't burn down everything. All right. Well, let's go to see what makes the save and what takes half. What makes the save and what is going to take half? We will start with what makes the save and what takes half with Liz. Woo! Like we've said already, this is the game I chose. To me, what makes the save it was obviously, it just shows this was a game created by fans. The care taken for the background, the characters, the attempts to emulate the kinds of things that happened in the show with the rules. You know, they even go so far as to describe a really well-run adventure session as recreating the feeling you get from watching an episode or reading a good fanzine story. And having purchased and contributed to my fair share of Blake 7 fanzines in the past, I know exactly what they're talking about. <laughs> so for me, even if you decided you wanted to use a completely different rule set than what is delivered here, I think this book, if nothing else, is invaluable as a setting guide for the worlds of Blake 7. Especially if you do also get the technical manual that goes with the game fantastic images and stats for the different kinds of ships, weapons, teleport bracelets. Even if you decide, I don't care for these rules at all, there's a lot in here that if you wanted to run a game in the Blake 7 universe, you should probably get this book. Liz has been trying for years to convince me to run a Blake 7 victorious game at uh, North Texas. I've managed to say no every year. <laughs> yeah. um, what does not make the save or what takes half... 
yeah, <laughs> space combat. <laughs> I've I've never been a fan of overly complicated rules and math. And you know, I'm sure it's not a surprise to any of you that I hated the ship combat rules. It's like it the whole thing just makes my head ache. And <laughs> I if I had to use these rules, I'd probably try to never have anyone in a ship combat at all ever <laughs> in the entire campaign, which would be terrible because it's gotta happen sooner or later. <laughs> but it's like, ugh. <laughs> the crew managed to run away from everybody all the time. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> So the end of every episode. But anyway. (laughs) All right, Corbett? It makes a save. I I still go back to the star system creation because I I could totally take that out of that game, put it in any other game. Entirely useful on its own. Uh, And there's a lot of great reference material, like like Liz was saying, throughout the book that makes it uh, pretty interesting. to to, If you're a fan of of Blake 7 on any level, it's pretty neat. What doesn't make the save, though, is the games. There's two example games in the back of the book. And they're the worst setups I could ever imagine. They're they're straight up taken from the show. And they really kind of (laughs) stink. I mean, (laughs) well... well, let's it's be honest. Like, I love Blake Seven, but there were some episodes. The Web. I, I almost yeah. you, you beat me to it. You warned me about that one, and then I watched it and went, "Oh, this is what he was talking about." With, <laughs> as, as one reviewer called them, the snot Ewoks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, no. Well, the, the the example games they put in there is like the first setup when they're on the prison ship, and like, okay, just tell your players they just need to figure out how to escape on their own. Like, no player is going to figure out how to escape they expect to kind of be given the position or the second follow-up is okay everyone's dead and you're about to be killed what do you do next at the end of the entire series run (laughs) (laughs) you're aven standing over the bloody corpse of blake as the federation troopers circle around you yes it'd be like okay jim let's start the game you're a wizard who's used up every spell everyone's there to kill you what do you do? <laughs> I, I, I read you, man. It's like, okay, here's your very first Star Trek, the role-playing game adventure ever. It's the Kobayashi Maru. Figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> Only it's real. <laughs> like, let's start the game easy here. Like, that's not going to be, that's not going to be, let me introduce you to Blake 7. Let me introduce you to the way it should feel. And let's move on through. Okay. Oh, but the funniest part about that, though, is that section where they have the sample games. They start out with this big warning, you know, if you're a player, don't read this so yes. you can preserve the element of surprise. It's like, but this is taken from the episode. There's no <laughs> surprise. Not even a minor difference, really. <laughs> but like nobody is going to be surprised. Corbett, the answer is I cast Dimension Door because of the casting timing. Just get the hell out. It just drops down. <laughs> I never submitted to Blake Seven fanzines, but I read my share in the in the 80s, and I gotta say, half of I think half of all fanzine stories ever written in existence for Blake Seven was what happened after Gouda Prime, and that. So I could see lots of people wanting to play that and pick up from yeah. where that, you know, to try to rationalize. No, everybody really isn't dead. It just looks that way or something or even gets away at the last minute because high, f- high five and Avens always get away. <laughs> but but you're right. You're right. As far as actual, I wonder if they were, again, written for people who weren't really gamers to kind of get them in the mindset as more samples of play. Well, I've, I've played a lot of like already dedicated ip type games and you know usually they give you a little sample of what it's like without putting you oh there's maybe some stormtroopers around the corner you better avoid them or something it's like no here comes darth vader and the entire armada behind him and all your guns are empty and your pants are down 501st <laughs> legion and yeah and your your lightsabers malfunctioning yeah Cor- everything Cor- Corbett's right Corbett's right, because Corbett didn't that suggested scenario where you start on the prison ship. You start an episode, well, two technically, I guess, not one. Except it says, but the Andromedans have already invaded. Mm. Like, wow! You're just just on another pirate prison ship going to another prison colony planet, I guess, or maybe Cygnus Alpha. 
I, I think it's Cygnus Still Alpha. Still Cygnus Alpha? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact, Terry Nation and Tom Baker wanted the Andromedan invasion to be the Daleks, to create a connection between the two shows. Man, that would have been so cool God, if they'd that been, been able to do that. Awesome. That would have been cool. But anyway, you're, you're not wrong. You are not wrong, Corbett. You, you've yeah. definitely got a point there. All right, Jim. I would have liked to have seen Tom Baker and Paldero competing for air in the acting <laughs> room. Those two. <laughs> On a snark fest, yeah. Yeah, that, that would have been a show. Uh, Negative. <laughs> Tom Baker, he's 90, and he still can't walk into a room without trying to own it. Yep. <laughs> All right, uh, what makes a save is just me and my soul sister Liz being quantum entangled. I wrote this down. Makes a save. Blake 7 RPG is a top-notch fan creation, lovingly created and playable. It's concise where it <laughs> needs to be concise, with crunchy optional rules if you want them. So how much did I just magically agree with Liz? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's a. I mean, that that's what comes through in all of this. It's it's just a love for the, a show that's brand new to me. So I'm in the process of falling in love with it. So I I like the show and the game far better than I thought to. It's just which gets to my doesn't make the save. The rule system is just not my cup of tea and pre- playstyle preferences. So I would never run the system. I would do exactly what we've already suggested at different parts of this episode. I'd want this as my setting book and then I'd use D20 Modern or something or make up my own game system but that's me i'm a do-it-yourself like the end of my game world campaign i was running it i played we played every edition but i was running mutant future for the rules and game world box first box set for the setting okay mine sound like a broken record makes the save there's love here there, there really is love you know the, the authors of this game love blake seven and they know their stuff I think as far as the game system you're not wrong but i think it's one of those if you love brp You'll love this. I like B- BRP, but only for certain settings. And this isn't one of them. Which gets me to doesn't make the save. I understand that Blake 7 was meant to be a gritty dystopia. But I think the rules system they're trying for, BRP, is just too lethal for that. For all the dystopians, they didn't lose more than one crew member a season. And this, one bad combat, and even if you're running the actual crew, you could lose half your team. Now, that may be realistic, but it's not to the genre. It's not to the show. So I I can understand what they were trying for. And like I said earlier, BRP was popular, particularly in Ring quests edition in britain in the 80s so i understand but i would have used a different rule set but as yeah as a setting book you can't go wrong here it's really in my mind's eye you you already did this just imagine you college age and you and liz have just met and i know this didn't happen in real life but in my mind's eye you already did this you just did it with traveler yeah or victorious (laughs) hypothetically for a science fiction game if you wanted that Exactly. <laughs> Messalina took her psychic skills. She's letting us know something. Yeah, she's telling us it's time to wrap up. So, this has been the Blake 7 role-playing game. We will have a link to the Horizon webpage, and you can order it there if you jump through a few hoops. There's copies on eBay. I think there's even a copy at Noble Night Games if you want to try to look there. And don't want to order from the United Kingdom. So, Hope you've enjoyed it. Looks like there's some pursuit ships on uh, Zen's detection screen, so we are going to head off into the wild blue y- black yonder there. Standard plus two. <laughs> Standard by two. Standard Fun by two. Thumbed. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. See ya. Free arc. This is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half.